Okay. Now for our message. Still this morning. It'll be brought to us by Mr. Matthew Steele and is an entitled Armament Training. Well, good morning. Are we having a fantastic feast? And how much rejoicing have we been doing? Lots. That's awesome. So I'm just going to take us to a different scenario for a second. Because we are in this place of rejoicing and, and peace and safety. But as we know, that's not always the case, is it, in the world? There is this opposite to what we're enjoying this week, and that's called war, isn't it? There's war that is in the world. And I, I imagine, and I hope, and I wish this to be true, that most of us here have never experienced war. Maybe there's a few. But most of us, hopefully, have not experienced being in a conflict, in a battle, in, in that incredible amount of danger that war brings individuals. In World War II, my grandfather, my mother's father, uh, was stationed in Scotland. Didn't get to see really a lot of the war. He was an engineer for the RAF. And so he was, you know, fixing uh, mechanical issues on planes and, and, and perhaps involved in some of the work on runways and things of that nature. And certainly, you know, the enemy would fly over the channel and come pay them a visit from time to time. But he wasn't in the trenches. However, there came a moment when because of his uh, experience before the war, he was a photographer a pretty good photographer, amateur but still. And so he was assigned to go into mainland Europe, to go where the fighting was, where the real trouble and the real danger was, on a mission. He was to go into this place that we, we now know as Pinamund. And it was, a, uh, it was a, a weapons factory, it was a manufacturing plant in northern Germany. And he was to take photographs of some very top secret material after the camp had been taken over by the Allies. And he was very closely uh, behind the different forces that had taken over that facility. And so here he was. He was taking pictures of top secret military equipment. And he was told, no personal pictures. And so today, our family has all kinds of personal pictures <laughs> that he took while he was there. And these are pictures of V-2 rocket parts and complete V-2 rockets. That's what he was there to photograph, these weapons of war. Everything there was top secret, entire rockets, the designs and the technology that was there that that he photographed eventually what just a couple of decades later would be responsible in part 
for putting man on the moon. A little bit of history in our family history. And I would just love to sit down and talk to him about that and what that experience was like. And then there was the other experience that he had. Because this particular facility was a forced labor facility. And he saw firsthand what incredible evil man is capable of inflicting upon his fellow human beings. He never talked about that, but one time. But he was a witness to that history. But I'm grateful, and I think we're all grateful, if we have never had to be in war, in conflict. And I think every warrior and every man or woman that has been in war would wish that for themselves, for all people. Yet in spite of all of what I've just said, in spite of the fact that we are here at the feast and we are in peace and safety and we are rejoicing before the Lord, we are still ourselves at war, aren't we? We are at war. Not a war with bombs and bullets, but a war of ideas and of beliefs and of moral values. And with each passing day and each passing year, we feel the battle intensifying. We feel the war closing in on us. All the way through our life as a Christian. We are going to be at war. And each one of us, as I said, is not at war with bombs and bullets. But we are at war in our minds. That's the battleground that each one of us faces. That each one of us has to go out every day as we wake up. We are engaged in a battle for our own minds. Remember what the Apostle Paul said in Romans chapter 7 and verse 22. He says, For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man, but I see another law, he says, and that word law can also be translated principle. And it can also be translated assignment. Like as in an order, as in a military assignment. I see this other law, this assignment in my members, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, with the mind I serve, myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. This conflict that we're all so very familiar with each one of us. But that's just one facet of this war. It's just a small part of this conflict that we have within our own human nature. We have our own particular set of weaknesses, don't we? Each one of us have our own personal challenges that are very unique to each of us. And others may look at us and think, oh, they're, they're doing fine. They're doing great. But each one of us carries a burden and a conflict that war against our mind. 
But there is another side to this conflict, another side to this warring against our mind. All minds, in fact, not just the minds of Christians who are convicted and, and recognize the, that we should be different, not just our minds, but all minds. We know it, whether we want to admit it or not, we have all seen that there is an evil force in the world. One that seeks to destroy mankind altogether. That wars against the minds of mankind regardless of belief or willingness to accept that it is even going on. We certainly in our Western world live in a society that <laughs> has thoroughly diminished and dismissed the notion that there is an enemy actively warring against us. But whether we want to admit it or not, there is still a war going on. In 1 Peter 5 and verse 8, it says, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Resist him, steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brothers in the world. But may the God of all grace who has called us into his eternal glory by Jesus Christ, after you have suffered a while, perfect and establish and strengthen and settle you. To him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. When I was thinking about this message, and thinking about the, the things that I wanted to pull out about this message, I was reminded of something my brother-in-law, has, uh, Trevor, has quoted to me many times. And it's a passage from C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity. And you may have read it. He says, Christianity agrees that this universe is at war. But it does not think this is a war between independent powers. You know, he's not saying that this is a war between one country and another country. He says Christianity thinks it is a civil war a rebellion, that we are living in a part of the universe occupied by the rebel. That we are living in this part of the universe that is occupied by the rebel forces arrayed against God. Enemy-occupied territory, that is what this world is. Christianity is the story of how the rightful king has landed. You might say landed in disguise and is calling us all to take part in a great campaign of sabotage. When you go to church, you're really listening. You're really listening in to the secret wireless from our friends. That is why the enemy is so anxious to prevent us from going. And that's, that's a classic World War II reference. When, when those that were in occupied Europe would listen to the BBC and they would listen for codes and those codes would come through and they would coordinate their attacks their their rebellion against the rebels we are in this enemy occupied territory every man and woman and child on the face of this earth is in a war zone whether we are accepted or not and there are only two types of living with this condition 
there's really only two options. We either, one, for those of us who know it, or we are in the other camp, those of us that don't. If we are in Christ Jesus, then we know that we are in enemy territory. By necessity, we have to engage with this enemy. We can't be passive, can we? We can't just stand back and bury our heads in the sand. Why can't we do that? Well, we'll get into that. As I was thinking about this, a question comes to my mind. How do we fight? How do we fight? How do we fight this enemy that, frankly, we don't see? It's like fighting the Klingons with their, with their cloaking shields up, isn't it? How do we fight this enemy that we do not see? Well, I was naturally drawn to Ephesians 6, verses 10 through 18. A scripture that we're all very familiar with. And it's about the armor. It's the famous passage that Paul describes to us as Christians the Christian armament that we should have. He says in verse 10, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all, to stand. Stand, therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. And above all, taking the shield of faith, with which you are able to quench the fiery darts of the wicked one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to, the, to this end, with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. So, Sean was asking earlier how many Feast of Tabernacles we've been to. I could ask how many sermons have we heard on this passage? Let's start at 50, right, 100. But it's interesting, isn't it, because it's one of those passages that while we've heard it many, many times, we are still drawn back to it because it is so critical that we learn from it, remind ourselves to put on these pieces of armor and what they are and what they do for us. So. We're going to go through it for the 151st time. But hopefully we can look at it and see something new. Or maybe just remind ourselves that, ah, that's a piece I keep forgetting to put on. But also, we might need to update it a little bit. Bring this passage more up to date. Because when you think about this scripture... We tend to think of some traditional armor, don't we? 
In your mind's eye, when you think of this, you may, you may remember a church that has a symbol, right? The, the Church of God International that has the armor. And if you look at that, it's very medieval looking. Very medieval looking. Paul wasn't writing in medieval times. Isn't that interesting? So we view these armaments through the lens of our own history, through our own culture. The period that Paul was writing was the Roman period. So when he was thinking of these armaments, the shield and the sword and the helmet and so on, he was thinking of Roman times, something that the, the people in Ephesus could have just looked over and said, yeah, there's one of those stinking Romans over there right now with all of his armor on. Don't want to mess with him. So, looking at it perhaps from a Roman standpoint might be more accurate. But it's not all that interesting, is it? After all, we don't see Roman soldiers marching around anymore. So perhaps we need to even update our images of the armor. So I've brought along a few items. A few items of armor that if uh, everybody pays attention, especially if some young people pay attention, they may be able to go home with a brand new piece of some of my armor that I brought today. So let's look again at the scripture. I'm focusing on a few select areas. Try to see if we can't update this wardrobe a little and figure out a little bit more of what Paul is trying to get us to understand. So going back to the beginning in Ephesians 6, Paul says, therefore take up the whole armor of God that you are able to withstand in the evil day, having done all to stand. I have a question about this verse. Do you think that Paul looked out ahead in the future when he was writing this verse? When he said, withstand in the evil day, was he thinking of a specific day out in the future? Was he thinking of a particular day that we were preparing for, that we're practicing for, that we're training for, that we're getting ready for? It's almost like the orders have come down, right? A 1,900-hour Zulu, go. The moment that we've been training for has arrived. We're launching the attack. Is that what he was saying? Is there a particular day that we will stand and face the enemy? Well, you might be thinking, sure. Call it the day of the Lord, right? Maybe some of you are thinking about that. That it's the day of the Lord. No. Wrong. That's not actually what he was saying. That's not an evil day at all, is it? At least, not for us. The day of the Lord is not an evil day for us. In writing to the Thessalonians, Paul talked about the day of the Lord completely differently from what we have here in Ephesians. In Thessalonians 5 and verse 2 he says, For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord 
comes as a thief in the night. Well, that doesn't sound good. For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon who? Them. The enemies of God. Comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that this day should overtake you as a thief. So we are not going to be surprised when this day arrives. Have you noticed that? We will not be overtaken as in a thief. You are all sons of light and sons of the day and daughters of light and daughters of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep in the night, and those who get drunk are drunk in the night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love and as a helmet the hope, the hope of salvation. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. This day of the Lord that's out there ahead of us does not bring evil for us. It's good for us. Salvation and redemption and life with Christ Jesus. And yet this in, in this passage, Paul also instructs the Thessalonians that they should put on armor. If the armor then is not for that day of the Lord, then what is it for? What day are we talking about? Well, if you look at the passage in Ephesians, and also we'll go back and we'll look in an earlier chapter, we'll see that the translators didn't really help us. The word day probably should be translated days. Days. Days of evil or calamity or wickedness. And this makes more sense when we go back to Ephesians 5.15. Paul says, see that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Not just the day. There's not just a single day. The days are evil. And this is the same Greek word. Therefore do not be unwise, but understand that the will of the Lord, what the will of the Lord is. And do not be drunk with wine, which is dissipation but be filled with spirit, the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of God. And if you've ever wondered why it is that churches have hymns and songs before they have a, a message or a sermon or a scripture reading. It's right here. This is the instruction. This is how we do church. And we've been doing this for a long time now. It is they're so critical that we sing praise and psalms and hymns and spiritual songs together that is so very important for us to do. And of course, the biggest reason of all 
is because out there the days are evil the days are evil but notice also that Paul refers to this concept of being drunk so was there a lot of drinking going on in these churches or was he trying to say that this is a symbol for something else representing something else well as anyone who has had too much to drink that's none of us here right we have never had too much to drink but we hear say that when you have too much to drink it affects what part of your body the mind it affects the mind and it affects the mind so much that you don't even think your mind's affected oh, I'm fine I can, I can drive home it affects the mind which in turn affects the functioning of everything else it diminishes our ability to reason to react and it does something else doesn't it it lowers our inhibitions it lowers the boundary of our behavior so Paul is likening this dissipation to drunkenness but what is dissipation well if we look at the Greek word it means wastefulness and when I when I looked at it in the Strong's there's another word there meaning to waste our faith to throw it away discard everything that we know to be true and right and returning to a condition and it says it right there of unsavedness unsavedness dissipation drunkenness spiritually speaking is reverting back to a condition of being unsaved and all of this battle all of this conflict between the godly worldview and the worldview offered by the enemy is taking place in one place for each one of us in our mind right between our ears allowing ourselves to become drunk with the intoxicating drink that the world tells you that there is no absolute right or wrong you don't have to be shackled by that here liberate yourself liberate your thinking whatever's good for you do it there's nothing harmful just just don't hurt others there's no great moral standard other than just don't hurt others just do what you want what feels right all things are allowable and good but interestingly all things are allowable and good except for what anything biblical anything in the Word of God now that you know that's bigoted and that's narrow-minded and condemning so we battle against that world and against those influences and the drunkenness that can come into our minds into every adult mind every teenage mind and whether we think it or not every child's mind 
as I said earlier, whether we are accepted or not, realize it or not, we are at war in our mind. So what can we do in the face of this assault? Well, let's turn back to Ephesians chapter 6 and let's look at a couple of pieces of the armor and dig a little deeper. We're not going to have time to cover everything today, but we can put on some of this armor. He says, stand therefore. Okay? I'm standing. You're sitting. It's okay. But I'm standing. I'm not laying down. I'm not hiding in a hole. He says, stand. Having girded your waist with truth. Having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Having your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. And then he says, above all, taking the shield of faith. How do you like my shield? Anybody recognize the shield? It's who? Captain America. Captain America, which is kind of ironic that a Brit is holding it right now, isn't it? So I have my shield of faith, with which you are able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. And then he says, take the helmet of salvation. Okay, I've got one of these around here somewhere. <laughs> what do you think of my helmet? Now, who wears uh, a helmet kind of like this? You better believe it. It's kind of hard to see in this thing. And above all, yeah, I said that part. Take the helmet of salvation, and then it says the sword of the Spirit. I've got one of these around here somewhere. my sword which is the word of God praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication with the saints so you're all persevering with my rather ridiculous outfit but what do you think what do you think of my armor my shield, as we've already said, is from Captain America. And then, the Iron Man helmet, which I know it's not a helmet, you know, it's, it's empty in the back. The helmets were ridiculously priced. <laughs> so, budget cuts, we just get the front part. Which is good for you guys, because you don't have to look at me anymore. And besides, I really didn't want to try and explain to Dale and Ian that particular receipt. <laughs> you paid how much for a face mask? Yeah. So, and then what else do I have? I have this sword. Anybody recognize the sword? Who said that? Who said that? Ah, Mike. Wonder Woman sword. I took it from her in a field of battle. Yeah, a likely story. 
That's not going to happen. But it's interesting, isn't it? That in spite of all of our modern technology, and in spite of what we can do, these symbols persist in our culture. They're updated. I mean, I think I'd scare a few Romans with my glowing eyes. But other than that, they'd recognize some of this stuff. It would be the same to them. Oh, wait a second. Let me put this down. I forgot a part. Uh-oh, there it goes. Okay. I wonder if I get it on the right way. I'm going to leave the helmet off. So, uh, what do you think of my cape? Anybody uh, thinking, wait a second, there's no cape in here. Paul doesn't say, put on the cape. That's true. But I am the man of steel, am I not? So, had to wear it. It's my wife's idea. I'm not that creative. And, you know, I was actually talking with Ian the other day. I, I was kind of mentioning some of what I was going to get up to, making sure it wasn't too crazy. I don't have the crazy stuff that Ian has, so I think I'm good. <laughs> And he's like, no, I like it. And he said, you know, what we were discussing, and we said, well, when we're, when we're spirit beings, we're going to look pretty goofy if we don't have a cape when we're flying around. Right? I mean, we're just used to the cape flowing in the wind. So maybe capes are optional. Of course, if you're uh, a fan of the Incredibles, capes are a bad idea. So, I'm going to take the cape off. Because, while I may be a man of steel, I'm not the man of steel. I'm not Superman. And we know that there's only ever been one Superman. Right? One Superman. One hero like Superman. In fact, Brian's got an image I've used this before in Tulsa. I love this image. I saw it on a t-shirt. So we've got all these superheroes, right, including Superman, all leaning in. And it's like we just arrived at the end of the conversation when he's been talking to them all and he says, and that is how I saved the world. There is only one Savior, isn't there? There is only one Superman, and that is Jesus Christ. And it's so funny that in our culture we are constantly looking for heroes. And he's been trying to reach out to us all along. So, 
Let's get back to our, our armor. So let's consider the shield of faith. What comes to mind when you think about this image? This shield of faith. Obviously it's something a warrior uses. Captain America uses it in lots of different ways. He throws it at things and people. It's a big discus. Ready? So he throws it around and he, he hits people with it. Breaks their weapons and so on. Only the bad guys. But is that really how we use a shield? Because if we're in hand-to-hand -hand combat and we start throwing our shield away, most people would look and say, well, he's gone stark raving mad. Because we're guaranteed to get cut down by somebody. Right? You know, we watch in the movies and we have all the hero and he loses his shield and he picks up another sword and, you know, and he's able to fight on. And that's not how the melee of hand-to-hand -hand combat was. Where sometimes warriors would kill each other and they were on the same side. That's how confusing that melee would be. So, we don't want to throw our shield away. Captain America, I'm sorry, but it's just not realistic at all, is it? The enemy can hit us with his sword if we don't have our shield. Or a spear, or a mace, or a pike, or anything that can be used as a weapon. And Paul specifically says that the shield of faith is used to protect us from and quench fiery darts of the wicked one. What are those darts? What are the fiery darts that he could throw at us? Well, remember where the battle is taking place. Where is the battle taking place? Our minds. So, these fiery darts are designed to injure what is in our minds, what is inside of us. These are the sort of things that can damage this new creature in Christ. They are attacks designed to do one thing. Kill us. They're designed to kill us. And it's interesting that Paul, what Paul decide, describes here is something that we do in our modern warfare. You know, once man discovered ranged weapons, right, some kind of bow and arrow and then a crossbow, well then, we're off to the races. Ranged weapons are fantastic. I can reach out and hit the enemy before he even comes to me. And so we, what? We added fire on top of that. We got pitch or some other kind of burning material, oil, and fired it off to destroy the enemy at the other end. And then we've been perfecting it ever since, right? We've got the cannons with explosive shells and, and, and artillery rounds. And then airplanes dropping bombs. And of course, V2 rockets, just like my grandfather saw. And then beyond that, missiles that can just rain fire from half a world away. Every single advancement is about throwing this fiery dart 
at the enemy or at us. So each one is a form of fire. But we have good fire though, don't we? Don't we have good fire inside of us? In Acts chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, on the day of Pentecost, there appeared to them divided tongues as a fire, and one sat upon each of them, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues, other languages, as the Spirit gave them utterance. We have good fire within us. So is there something to this, that the enemy is throwing fiery darts at us, at our good fire? Well, we've heard of that concept before, right? You fight fire with fire. Fire with fire. The opposite to the fire of the Holy Spirit is another kind of fire that the enemy brings against us. I think that is deception. It is lies. The enemy fires at us his greatest weapon. The weapon that he has used from the very beginning. Deception and lies to combat what? What is it that we were supposed to be girded about with? Truth. And that's what we see in our world today. In John 14, verse 15, Jesus says, If you love me, keep my commandments, and I will pray the Father that he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever. The Spirit of truth. A spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him but you know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. We are given this spirit of truth, this fire of truth. And then John later in 1 John 4 verse 1 he says Beloved, do not believe every spirit but test the spirits whether they are of God. Huh. So there are other spirits then that are not of God. Fiery dart spirits perhaps ranged against us because many false prophets have gone out into this world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and is now already in the world. We forget that, don't we? We kind of look for the end time spirit of the Antichrist to come, right? And culminating in the day of the Lord and all the events that lead up to that. But Jesus said, or John said, that the spirit of Antichrist is already in the world. 2,000 years ago, it was already in the world. Do you think it's not in the world today? The spirit of anti-God, anti-Christ, anti-truth. A perfect example is the basic truth of biology, right? We don't even have to get into evolutionary science. There is man and there is woman. But now in gender identity stuff, 
right? We have all kinds of in-between genders. What is that? The Bible makes it plain to us. We can just read the truth of it. God made man and God made woman. God said to man, it'll cost you an arm and a leg. He said, what can I get for a rib? Just kidding. But now in this confused world, we can't even recognize this truth, can we? How confused people are in the world because they are under attack. There is a war going on against their minds. And when we have the Spirit of Christ Jesus, we confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. Every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. So it's almost as though that these deceptions or these fiery darts, this counter-spirit, this opposite spirit, the spirit of Antichrist is fired at us. And that is what we use, that, that is what we defend against and use this shield to defend against. Those spirit of Antichrist and of deception. If we lower our shield, what happens? They get through, don't they? Basic laws of physics. The fiery darts get through. And in practical terms, what does that look like? Well, perhaps maybe we lower that shield of faith and we start to doubt the promises. We start to think that, well, we're doing everything right. We're following God as best as we can, and yet still things come at us. We still struggle with medical issues and, and relationship problems and money troubles and, and many serious things that can come on a life. And we might think, hmm, maybe this faith that we've been following is not all that it's cracked up to be because we've lowered our shield can introduce damaging thoughts into the battlefield of our minds. Perhaps this faith is not as what we saw. Perhaps it, this religion is not as trustworthy as we understood it to be. These fiery darts might be the sort of things that can quench the spirit of Christ Jesus in us instead of the shield quenching them. But then that leads to another question. As we struggle in this conflict that we're in, what happens to our shield of faith? Now this shield is made of plastic. Sorry. Again, the metal ones were about $300. <laughs> Budget cuts, you know, it's, it's terrible. But when a real shield goes into battle, what happens to it? Anybody? Dented, chipped, gouged, scratched, beat up a little bit, or a lot, right? I've been to the Tower of London, not because I did anything bad. But there, they've got all these finely polished, beautiful, beautiful armaments and chain mail and armor of all kinds and shields. And, and it's funny, you have, you know, the 
the different armor of Henry VIII as he got bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. We've got about eight of them. Not really, but there was quite a few. And they're all in perfect condition. Why? Because he didn't go to battle and use them, did he? I mean, not by number three, anyway. The horse couldn't carry him at all, let alone all the metal that's on him. So when we see a shield that is in perfect condition, we know it's never been to war. Never been to war. Never been in battle. So when we see faith without any chips or dents or scratches or roughness around the edge, then maybe that isn't faith at all. And when we do see in our faith that sometimes we feel it's a little shaken and a little beat up and that maybe this last year was a tough year and why did these things come upon us? And, and we feel like our, our faith is, is shaken a little bit. It's okay. Shields are designed to take the brunt of the battle. Right? Your faith can be a little chipped and a little dented. It doesn't have to be perfectly polished. Now, there is a really interesting concept, and I'd love to spend more time on it, but when we come here at the feast, part of your job and my job together is to hammer out some of those dents and reshape that, that shield and maybe add a few more handholds and maybe put some more graffiti on it. Do all the things that warriors do in preparation for the next battle. But still, our faith will not be in pristine, perfect condition. Not if we've gone through the battle. Now, if somebody was to come along to you and say, well, listen, if your faith's a little shaky and you feel like, you know, it's not what it should be, I have a different faith. Here's a brand new shield. It's all shiny and pretty. Why don't you use it instead? Would you? Would you use that shield instead? I wouldn't. Because I know where my faith has come from. I know the battles that it's been in. That's just not going to stay up, is it? I know what I've been through with this shield that I have. And so do you. It's holding together just fine. I don't need your worldview. I don't need to adopt some other faith or religion. I don't need humanism or paganism or Islam or some other watered-down version of Christ Christianity even. I don't need materialism. I don't need all of these other worldviews that this, the enemy is throwing at us. It's almost though that there are peddlers in armor, right, out there in the world, and they're trying to deliver to us fabricated faith, faith that will not endure. We have our faith from our Savior. It is tested in battle. 
So we realize that faith does not remove challenges, it does not take away hardship or conflict, it does not remove medical, financial problems, or even fix our relationships. But our faith, if it is a true shield of Christian faith, will lessen the blows. It will reduce the shock and mitigate the damage. And then Paul tells us to take the helmet of salvation. spiffy Iron Man helmet of salvation. But it's not the Iron Man helmet of salvation. Even if it does have glowing eyes. But what is this helmet then? It's natural to assume that the helmet of salvation is about protecting the mind, isn't it? Because if this war is going on in the mind, then putting on this helmet of salvation is protecting the battlefield of the mind. It's the place where we do our reasoning. The place where we examine the information we receive from the outside world and then we make decisions about what to do and how to live and what is wrong and what is right. And I think it's okay to look at that helmet in this way as that protector for this this precious brain and mind that God has given us. But there's something else in this. In Romans chapter 10 and verse 6, I feel like there's something more to this helmet. Something that uh, the brain uses quite extensively, in fact. It says in verse 6, But the righteousness of faith speaks in this way. Do not say in your heart, who will ascend to heaven? That is, to bring Christ down from above, or who will ascend, descend into the abyss? That is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is, the word of faith, which we preach. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. For whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. I think, at least in part, the helmet of salvation is the proclamation of our belief in Christ Jesus as our Lord. That he really did raise from the dead and that because of it, we also will be saved. That we also will be raised from the dead. It's not just enough to know all the facts. It's not enough to just read all the material. We have to confess. We have to confess with our mouth. We have to yell the battle cry. Right? We have to yell out the battle cry. Why? Because we want the enemy to know that we are coming. This isn't a passive thing. This is an active thing. 
No one ever goes to war in a passive manner and not expect to live through it. This is an active thing. The battle cry, the confession that Jesus Christ is Lord and all others are not and that we are saved through him. And it's interesting that Paul says in verse 10, for with the heart one believes unto righteousness. Remember he said putting on the breastplate of righteousness and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. There's something about confessing. Speaking the words that we believe. And that helmet is there to help us protect that. So that we can yell that battle cry. Protect our mind. And speak out in confession. And if we don't actively confess. If we don't actively confess in words or deeds. What does that look like? If we are not confessing our belief in Jesus Christ as our Savior, if we are not sharing that with the world, then what voice do they hear? They only hear the fiery darts of deception, of lies. We need to guard our mind, protect and limit what information goes in that influences our behavior. And we need to speak out of our mind, out of our mouth, confessing that Jesus is Lord. Our final component that I wanted to focus on today is, of course, the only offensive weapon that we're given in this spiritual suit of armor. In verse 17, Paul tells us we must put on the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Do we do this every day? Do we do this every day? You know, I was thinking in some ways if we were to, if we had to actually suit up with armor every day before we go out of the house. I know my brother-in-law calls his suit his armor. He's going to work. And I can see that. But if we actually had to put a weapon on, and a, and a helmet, and a shield, would these concepts be more real to us? Would they make more sense? Are we putting on the Word of God every day? It's just, we know that we should. We've heard countless messages that tell us that we need to study the Word. And we're all sitting here thinking, I know, I need to do it more. We all can do it more. There is no overdosing on the word. Right? We can all do it more. But then are we applying God's word to every situation? Are we applying it to every joy and every sorrow? We very easily will look, right, in times of sorrow for words of comfort. And that's good. But we should also look for words of joy and bring God into our celebration. And if we're constantly using the Word of God to attack the enemy and counter his every stroke, then what happens? 
when you're going at the enemy with with the word of God with the sword what happens well you can go ask my son Joseph because he's learning to be a master swordsman he started fencing about just a little less than a year ago and he's he's getting pretty good and I, I like the logo at the club the, the little motto it says it's fun to stab your friends <laughs> and of course they have all the protection on the, the, the face guard and everything is, is really safe but he's learning how to use a sword He's learning how to use a sword and the art of fencing. And he's getting good at it, like I said before. He's learning that, well, if you hold too tight to that sword, then you lose your accuracy. And your large muscle groups will just move everything around in big, big movements. What he's learning is that you have to hold the sword with just the right amount of delicacy to not have it knocked out of your hand but also to be able to find that one point in the enemy and strike home. To knock away the enemy's weapon and strike home. Delicate, delicately. He's also working hard at positioning his feet. Getting ready to respond to the movement of the enemy. And he's learning how to deflect his enemy's attacks. And counter-attacking. And I've noticed something. Joseph is, uh, he likes to win. And so when he doesn't uh, want his fellow students to, uh, to come at him, he'll do something. He'll just do it naturally. He will just start going at them. And they're busy doing what? Defending at every stage. They can't attack him. And if you do it right, and you don't open yourself up to an attack, then the heel can just keep them busy and drive them all the way to the other end of the, of, of the map. So we can do the same. If we use that word of God effectively, with delicacy, with refinement, but with strength, with targeted ability, how accurately and we take the battle to the enemy. In 2 Timothy 2 and 14, Paul says, Remind them of these things, charging them before the Lord not to strive about words with no profit to the ruin of the hearers. Striving about words. Don't strive about words. It's like a swordsman wildly just waving about. And when that happens leaving himself open leaving himself open to attack but Paul says be diligent to present yourself approved to God a worker who does not need to be ashamed rightly dividing the word of truth and that doesn't mean dividing and cutting up the word of truth that means deftly handling the word of truth effectively using it as a weapon but not against people. Not against people. Remember, we do not f battle, do we, with flesh and blood. 
but with principalities and powers. As the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 4.12, For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even the division of the soul and spirit and joints and marrow and the discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. There is no creature hidden from its sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Do you think that when we use the word of God in our life, all things are naked and open to us as well. Of course. Because we can pierce the enemy. We can divide through and cut into his lies and break it out and see the lies for what they are. But if we don't use this weapon, if we put down our sword, the word of God, the truth of God, then what are we left with? Nothing. Actually, worse than nothing. Because if we lay down the word of God, the attacks, are they going to stop? No. We've already determined that there is a war against our mind, whether we know it or not, whether we battle it or not. So if we lay down our weapon, our enemy is not going to stop. Back in 2 Timothy 2.16, he says, But shun profane and idle babblings, for they will increase to more ungodliness. Profane, idle babblings, useless words. And he says they act like a cancer in the new creature. He says their message will spread like a cancer. And they had this. They experienced this. He, they saw this. These two individuals were spreading like cancer, who have strayed concerning the truth, saying that the resurrection is already past, and they overflow, over, overthrow the faith of some. Nevertheless, the solid foundation of God stands, having this seal. The Lord knows who are his, and let everyone who names, names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. When we stop using the word of God, which is the sword of the Spirit. We don't just lay down our weapons, because that's impossible. The attacks will still come. The enemy will show no mercy. He's devoid of mercy. He's the opposite of mercy. He will keep firing arrows until we are dead. That's it. He will continue until we are dead. And so we'll scramble around until we find some other sword, some other word, some other philosophy, some other religion or worldview. And none of them will able, be able to defend us. So we need to stay armed. We need to have our shields up, our shields of faith, the helmet of salvation which is the confession of the hope that we have within us, and the sword in our hand ready to go on the offensive. But, as I finish today, I want to give away some armor. Is anybody interested in winning some armor? Oh, there's somebody standing already at the back. Got some candidates over here. All right, I've just got a few questions. 
with all this armor, now, now what, what I want you to do is raise your hand. First one to raise their hand and give me the right answer wins the armor. Okay? With all this armor, what type of day are we to be ready to stand in? Right back there, striped shirt. All days. Fantastic. I thought I had a trick question there. Come on up. <laughs> there he is. New Captain America right there. Now what's the most important shield you're going to carry around with you though, Captain America? Shield of faith. That's right. Absolutely. What does the helmet represent? Salvation. All right. Since you're holding a sleeping one, I'm going to bring this to you. And now, Joseph, you cannot answer this one. For two reasons. One, it, you've already heard this before. And two, you have way too many swords as it is. How are we to use the sword of the spirit. How are we to use it? How are we to use the word of God? Rightly divine, which means skillfully, deftly. There you go. If Wonder Woman comes calling for that, you didn't get it from me. <laughs> Brethren, I hope this was a different way of looking at the scripture. Maybe a little more updated. So the next time you see an Iron Man movie, or Captain America, or Wonder Woman, which, to quote my son, yeah, she's good and all, but she needs to put more clothes on. <laughs> Maybe you will think of this scripture. And just remember in your mind, in your heart, to put on these armor that God has given us. It is vital for our survival. I want to see everyone that is here. I myself want to be there also, together with you, in the kingdom of God, armored up and ready to go. Thank you, Matt. Uh, before we sing our next hymn, I want to mention um, there's